0: All right, we are in part two of chapter one. As I mentioned last week, I wasn't going to be able to get through it all um, without going way, way over time. My goal is to finish the bottom of the hour. Um, so, the chapter being God Judges People by Their Own Sin, which is um, in G.K. Beale's book, Redemptive Reversals and the Ironic Overturning of Human Wisdom. Um, that title that chapter becomes more clear what he means as we walk through this. So when I was a kid, um kind of asked myself this week as I was preparing, do did I understand what irony means? You know, I understand you kiddos are out there in this audience and it might may go over your head. Um I actually asked Emily um uh, from a you know we don 't do a classical type of education, so there 's this book teaching from the Trivium that describes the different lay levels of a child's ability to understand things and uh, which it makes sense and you know you question how early can a child under understand irony? Um, I probably could not have given a proper definition for irony as a child, even though I definitely experienced it and frankly. I still struggle about giving someone a definition of what irony is without being able to show what it is. Something is ironic when things are not what they appear to be. You know, sometimes, really, maybe even often, we prefer a more simple world where what you see is what you get. But that often doesn't happen in real life. You know, people can say, they can do something that is quite different from what we would expect them to say or expect them to do. You know, for example, you know this sign, this this picture I have here of this sign. This is a truly ironic uh, picture here. Uh, we have a pole. I don't know. It kind of looks to me like it could have been a a light pole or electrical pole of some sort. Um, in someone's property, I'm assuming, uh, and you can see nails all over it, pieces of paper. Looks like people had put up a bunch of signs there. Maybe you turn here for garage sale. Who knows? Well, the owner of this pole appears to have said, you know, I, I don't want this anymore, these signs on this pole. So she or he puts up a sign. All right, that's our first irony here. I don't want signs, so I'm going to put up a sign. And then that sign says, no signs. Well, that's irony, kiddos. That's, to me, one of the best ways to explain a view of irony. Um, There are many other ways irony spells out its way in our life. And the topic of our discussion this morning and was last week is God's use of irony in his judgment. Well, he does use irony in his judgment. He does use it in his rulings. Well, Beal, in his book, he, he asks the question, is ironic judgment the exception or is it the rule in Scripture? You know, it doesn't take long reading your Bible to discover that judgment is typically ironic in its kind. I think maybe you'll agree with me on that. It's often an eye-for-an-eye eye type of justice that's being served by God. Now, I'm not saying how we should necessarily serve justice in our own lives, personally. But it's often how we see God work things out. We see it in His providential motions as well. You know, it seems like it's written into nature. You know, Almost at the very beginning, we learn how the serpent... Tempted and deceived Eve with the opportunity to become like God. You'll become like God and you'll know. And to have that knowledge of God was that temptation. Well, taking that forbidden fruit, eating it, Adam, Eve and Adam together became woefully knowledge, knowledgeable of their great and shameful sin. They would spend the rest of their lives, in fact, growing in that knowledge of just what they are capable of in terms of sin. The, the poetry of, that we read and, and appreciate in the Psalms and, and those pithy principles throughout the book of Proverbs, they are rich with irony. That ironic judgment people suffer as a result of their careless lives, or in many cases, their ruthless lives. David, if you look at him and in Psalms, his prayers, namely his prayers about the wicked in, in his life, just observing them and the way they live, spreading disease, hurting other people. Often, he, David depicts the wicked. If you recall, sinking deep down in a pit of their own making, being caught in their own net. You know, again, how the sword would enter their own heart. It's what we read so often is that turning of events, a reaping of what you sow. A primary theme that we see in the Psalms. And knowing their ironic demise, David writes, knowing what's coming upon them. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't be surprised even of what they will do. David knows what's going to come to them in the end. We should too, brothers and sisters. We should remember what comes to them to the, in the end. Fret not is the command. In Proverbs... You know, we see, again, these principles that are rich with irony. You know, The Hebrew word for Proverbs means comparison or likeness. And that's what we, we see a lot of Solomon doing in, in other sages, if you will. Um, it's a collection of wise sayings based upon observation, a, very, a lifelong observation, uh, of the most wisest men who, who ever lived. Observing the cause and effect, the input and output of what people say and do. You know, some of them are, okay, I, that's true, I, I see that in our life. What does that mean, Solomon? What does that mean, Lord? It's, it's, a, it's a clear observation that we see. We shouldn't be surprised when we see things like this happen. These principles You know, a lot of what Solomon observed in people like him that we find in the Proverbs were similarities in life from which we get sayings like mother like daughter. You know, we find that in, I think it's in Ezekiel again. uh, Kids often grow up to be like their parents in many ways. Sorry, kids. It's true. You'll find that out for yourselves. Did I just say that? I sound like my mom or my dad. Another popular one, haste makes waste. These similarities. If we rush through a project, time and resources are often forfeit because we're not careful. We don't take the time and that project fails. G.K. Beale, he argues that these sayings of ironic punishment are also expressions of common principles inherent in the reality of life they are not exceptions to life is what he's saying they are a rule that's inherent in our lives like mother like daughter is often a truth likewise in the fifth commandment about honoring father and mother the irony of dishonor your mother and you will be dishonored We see that truth as a reality inherent in our lives. Just walking through some clear examples like what we did last week. Take Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. They were very new to the priesthood when they sinned. They sinned by offering what up? Strange fire, right? Offering up strange fire. And as a result of their sin, they were punished by fire. You know, by fire coming out from the presence of the Lord. It killed them. Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, grumbled and grumbled against the Lord while they were in, it, in the wilderness. Now, how soon they forgot it was who saved them from, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. How soon they forgot that. His, capable, his power and his goodness. Well, they grew tired of eating manna, didn't they? This bread of angels, as it's described later on, they grew tired of it. That in itself is ironic. They wanted meat. They wanted the meat, frankly, that they were accustomed to while in bondage. If that's not a A background story on our own lives sometimes. Wanting something in our past lives. Well, God punished them, right? He did. For their greedy and unthankful craving, He gave them, ironically, so much meat that it came out their nose. And they had to eat it for a month. It became loathsome to them, Scripture says. Now, that's one of God's more dramatic means of retributive irony. You know, you can read in Scripture... Take wicked Ahab, King Ahab, and Queen Isabel, wicked people. Their fates were ironic in nature. You know, just all the many things they did, but just that one story of how Ahab, he envied his neighbor's garden, that plot of land, which in comparison to what I'm sure King Ahab owned was nothing. But he wanted that. Jezebel incites her husband to um, have someone bring up some false charges so he can be accused of publicly blaspheming God. And so what do they do? They find a couple of guys were able to bribe them to do that same thing. And that neighbor, Naboth, was murdered, was stoned to death, and bled on the ground. And then we read, God pronouncing the punishment that would come on Ahab for this wicked deed quote in the place where the dogs lift up the blood of Naboth the dogs will lick up your blood and soon very soon in fact it'd been the next chapter in the book of king first kings Ahab dies in battle and the dogs quote the dogs licked up his blood according to the word of the lord which he spoke and the similar fate happened to Jezebel licking up, the dogs licking up her blood We, well, there's so many examples throughout the Old Testament of ironic judgments that are especially executed on the wicked nations, on the nations like for Babylon, for example, particularly brutal in their, um, in their quest to overthrow a people and destroying Israel, for example, even to the extent of killing Babies. the psalmist in verse in psalm 137 issues the following imprecation that imp- imprecatory prayer upon B- babylon it says daughter of babylon doomed to be destroyed blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock Babylon we know and we read suffered the same fate at the hands of the Medes and Persians that they made Judah endure. You know God's own people. Here we're talking about these wicked nations, but we know God's own people are not exempt from ironic judgment. You know, centuries and centuries Israel told to remember the Lord. They rejected the law of God. And he eventually judged them by rejecting them. Just as he threatened them in the covenant that he said he would do. He did. Also, God judged their sin of rejecting his word by removing it from Israel. That his word could no longer be found. Friends, I think that this is one of the more um, fearful things more things that we should, be, things we should be concerned with as believers, even. You know, as the proverb tells us, you know, um, you know the man's ways in his eyes are, are pure. We're blind to our sins so often. We don't see how we are rejecting the word of God in some way. You know, not coming to him. While Israel was rejected, this meant that God would send no more prophets to Israel for a period of time. There was a period of silence when it didn't matter how hard they would pray. They would not hear a word from the Lord. This the nation of Israel I'm speaking about. Well, Beal makes an argument in this chapter how we can see a similar kind of retributive irony being playing out in the church today. And when I say the church, I mean the visible church. The visible church, not the invisible church. And What I mean by that is, we don't, there are obviously not always Christians in the visible church. So many churches and also so many seminaries have rejected the authority and the relevance of God's Word today. So much so that It's almost a rarity to hear the Bible preached in many churches. That's an irony in God's judgment there. And they don't see it. That's a scary thing. Beale writes, he says, it's as if God has said, if you want to reject the authority of my word and scripture, I will reject you by no longer speaking to you in any way. You know, this makes sense. It makes sense since God designed the revelation of His Word during the Church Age to come through Scripture. Uh, again, as we was mentioned Wednesday evening, uh, lampstands being removed. There are many churches today who long to hear a word from God, but do not. They're being ironically punished by their own sin. Basically, the more they reject God's word, the more God rejects them. Nations, individuals, subject to the same ironic judgment is the point that Beal is driving at here in the book. And the principle that he calls out here, we can see it really clearly in Obadiah 15. I have the verse up on the screen. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. That is retributive irony. Deeds turning upon your own head. Proverbs 1 also states the principle of at an individual level. As we've seen, it's it's also, of course, relevant for nations. But Let's, let's see what this says. It says, my son, if sinners entices you, if they entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let, let us ambush the innocent. And then their demise. They lie and wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence... It takes away the life of its possessors. You may have heard, you know, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. The truth is that, and this is what kind of tests the faith of the church. Tests the faith. Because what happens in reality may, may make a person insist that God's ironic judgment of the wicked and ungodly is not actually common but uncommon. Because again, seeing the wicked prosper. How do we deal with this? Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Have you not? We've seen this. It's hard, it should be hard because of the sense of justice that God put into us. It should be hard to see. Or there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. But from an eternal perspective... Solomon writes concerning the ungodly, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There will be a final reckoning we must remember this not to be joyful in the demise of the wicked and it'll be a horrible thing that will come upon them but even to for fear for our own selves to take our salvation with fear and trembling god will involve the ultimate irony of belief bill says that uh, evil men have employed throughout their lives resulting in what we often see as their best life now. But it's you know I've heard it said before I think I may have heard it from Aaron first. You know, um, the saying of uh, this is the earth is the closest thing to heaven that a sinner will ever see. And it's the closest thing to hell a believer will ever see. It's, it's the best life now of that sinner who never returns to the lord that's a fair that's a very terrible prize in the long run that unbelief that they had god will turn it against them and judge them for it not to believe christ not to believe in christ is to be separated from god that is a punishment all in itself And it's going to be extended into eternity if that unbelief persists to that person's physical death. That's something that should make us want to spread that good news. There are no exceptions, Bill writes. There are no exceptions to the ironic punishment of unbelievers in their earthly lives. Their ultimate trust in some aspect of this world Their riches, their power, their family name, whatever it be. How about this? Their trust in their parents' faith. That never really was their faith. All these different aspects could be the very thing causing their very present spiritual failure and judgment. But we, brothers and sisters, must not despair that this upside-down reality That we see with the prosperity of the wicked and the plight of the righteous. We must not despair. The righteous and the truly wise, those who fear the Lord, where are we? We are in the hands of God. Scripture tells us this. Paul, the apostle, stated the very same truth later in one of his letters. In and, and 2 Timothy, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows who are his. One of my favorite Old Testament theologians, Walt Kaiser, he put it this way. He said, our quest for identity, our quest for meaning, for an explanation of the presence of evil, of injustice, for the inequities in life, it must end. That quest must end where Solomon's quest ended, in the fact that God sits at the helm, ruling and overruling for good. Solomon says, "That's the preacher says that's the end of the matter." The only hope for a non-Christian, for an unbeliever. To break the inevitable force of God's ironic judgment on their everlasting soul is to receive and trust in Christ alone. That is the only way. It is our only way. Christ did that for us believers, taking that judgment upon himself. Praise him. But again, as Christians, we can still feel that sting. Of God's irony and his chastisement of us. You know, Christ did this for believers, taking that judgment on himself. You know, our judgment is not an eternal one, it's a temporal correction. We don't stand condemned as believers. There, again, mentioned it many times from the poll, there are always consequences to sin. Always, no matter how mundane that sin may be, how commonplace it might be, yet unless there is a, a contrite confession from a heart that has a repentant attitude, God may very well definitely use that sin to humble and discipline that saint. In chapter 1, Beale illustrates the proverb, like mother, like daughter, or, you know, like father, like son. It's it's mostly how I've heard it, like father, like son. Um, Well, he uses it to to illustrate it through uh, that song from the 70s, Cats in the Cradle and the Silver Spoon. I don't know if you've heard it. I don't know if you recognize it. Um, But if you listen closely to those lyrics, it's a very depressing song. It is. It's a depressing song. This father is so caught up uh, in making a career that he gives very little time to his son while his son is growing up. But the irony is later in life, the father wants to make up for that lost time with his son. But then the son has learned from his father the very same thing that his father did to him. And so the son's too busy to spend time with his dad. It kind of makes you, as a dad, want to go hug your kid. You know, you hear that song. It's so depressing. But it's a good example of irony. And it plays itself out that way many ways, many times. You know, the sin of neglect, which can be mundane and commonplace so much so that we won't see it. That sin of misplaced priorities resulting in this example of a father idolizing his career. It can seem innocuous while grinding away, you know, day after day, work, work, work. It illustrates a web-like irony of sin. Very entangled. It could be a vicious cycle that feeds itself, becoming more and more entangled in that deception of the sin. And irony plays itself out. As Beale puts it, and I like the way he puts it here, um, in answer to the question of how can someone break out of this sinful pattern? By trusting in the irony of salvation. Isn't God's plan of salvation just full of irony? The righteous for the unrighteous, Son of God being. Humbled taking on flesh, you know, trusting in the experience of the perfectly righteous Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in his active and passive obedience. I know we've said that before, and just again for you kids, reminding you what does that mean? His active obedience. Well, we're talking about his his perfectly law abiding life. And his righteousness that he earned keeping the law perfectly, being eventually counted toward us, toward those who believe. And his passive obedience, again, he didn't put himself on the cross, but he willingly obeyed the Father in his plan to go to that cross. Trusting in the irony of salvation For you who have believed, those of you who have believed on Christ and you want to break this pattern of sin in your life that is a sad story of irony in its results, Bill, he offers three encouragements here for the believer. They're profoundly simple. First, read and study God's Word daily this will make you more and more sensitive to that subtle yet pervasive sin that mundane sin in 1 john chapter 2 the apostle tells us that we can become strong through allowing the word of god to abide in us do you want to be strong brother and sister Not strong in yourself, not strong in the knowledge you've accumulated, strong in the Lord. If you want that, the Word of God must abide in you. And what's the result? John writes, in overcoming the evil one. Is there another way to overcome the evil one? Not according to God's plans. I've mentioned this before. God's means of grace, His means of grace, isn't something that we can just store away. I've read the Bible six times. I've gone to church as a kid. I know it. I'm going to store it away and feed upon it in the future whenever I like. You, you don't do that. God would have you come to Him every day, for rich new stores. If you want just a passing knowledge of God and what He requires, read your daily devotional. Check off the box. But if you want to truly grow in Christ, what Beal is encouraging here is to consume his word. To study the word of God. It is the word of God after all. And the second thing he tells us, so important. Be willing to apply God's word every day by Faith. Knowing God's word is terribly important, but it is not enough. It's not enough. You must be willing, by faith, to allow it to mold your life, to change you. And no doubt, this will mean changing. Some of that change, you know this as well as I do, brothers and sisters, that your flesh will hotly resist that change. Won't it? Stick with it, is what God would tell you. Stick with it. Resist. And when needed, confess and repent. Continue to consume the word and change. Going over this, I'm reminded of our the way that we're so easily satisfied and not doing the needful things. Some Again, the profound, simple things. I remind me what Lewis, C.S. Lewis said, and I just want to read that to you again. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And it's the sad truth so often. So far too easily deceived by ourselves. And There's simplicity of profound truth of daily coming to Christ. The third thing he talks about, Bill, is to pray. Pray every day. Every day. Confess known sin. Confess your sin, that known sin, with a repentant attitude. Just call it out. Deal with it before the face of God. There's no hiding it, there's no pretending it didn't happen. Deal with it and repent multiple times if needed. Cran- you know, calling on God for the strength. You know, develop a prayer life is what He's really encouraging here. You know, it's good for you to do so because, again, your flesh will hotly protest. You know, your flesh will remind you—it's amazing—of a host of things that you should be doing instead, right? You know those very same things that, in your normal course, you would forget about because they're not that important, not until you want to pray. you know, listen to past Sunday school lessons that we've gone through on prayer, like the one we went through on by Brian Chaffel uh, on praying backwards, good instruction there, good ideas on developing a prayer life well Beal he notes that these these few recommendations he's given are. are They're truly what they are is biblical commands. That's what they are. They're commands. You know, many Christians tend to dismiss them because they're elementary. We wouldn't say that it's bad. But again, a man in his ways thinks in his eyes are are pure ways. We think we're doing these things so much, and we're not. The profound and foundational commands to trust and obey are too simple for the weak Christian. And that's ironic. The weak Christian should be able, to, you would think, well, he can only do the very simple things trusting and obeying. The book of Proverbs ironically points out the result of the simple and naive thinking. Uh, there are those those three recommendations that I went over that Beale gave are aimed at people who already believe upon Christ. For their salvation. But what about the implications of biblical idea of irony and God's ironic judgment for those who have not committed their life to Christ? What about them? Well, there is some praiseworthy advice that Beale gives here, I want to share. And we'll finish with this. Scripture says in Isaiah chapter 53, Who has believed our message? Who has believed our message, the prophet says. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We have walked in a way that is not good. Following our own thoughts. And as people have chosen their own ways, so God will choose their punishments. The Lord has set before you. He has set before you the way of life and the way of death. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Let the wicked forsake his way, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. And consider that God has made known unbeliever. Consider that God has made known the ways of life. For Jesus is the way, He is the truth in the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him, there is no other way. And although each of us have turned His own way, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. That's the good news. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of God's people for our sin. To us the stroke was due. But he himself bore the sin of many on the cross. That is what he has done. Commit your way, therefore, to the Lord Jesus Christ and do not forsake the way. We are commanded. For Christ is the only one who is able to guide our feet into the way of peace. Today, when we... There are many theologians that believe that God's love means that he would never ultimately... He could never send someone to an eternal hell. He would not do that. But Jesus' words in Matthew 7 have never been more relevant in that line of thinking. Christ says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it and enter by it are many this way to destruction. But for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You know, what so often seems to be the right way is the wrong way and from God's point of view. You know, the way that people think that will lead to some form of success, some blessing, it really often leads to the opposite, to a failure, to a cursing in life. And frequently, the sinful way that a person thinks, the simple way that he thinks will ensure that prosperity is the very way that secures that person's adversity. And that's the entanglement, you're getting more and more, that vicious cycle. You think you're prospering, but you're just sinking. In other words, people are punished by the very means in which they attempt to get ahead. And we see that. We talked about it last week, Pharaoh with with Haman, the enemy of the Jews, with with King Saul, of course, with Judas Iscariot. It is God who sees to it that a person's sinful ways to obtain good welfare, a person's ways of doing this, that those, those ways are reversed, and that it becomes a one-way street at, in, to an end of affliction, and for many, eternal death. Unbeliever, if you, there's no if to it. You, for those of you who haven't trusted in Christ, don't wait to, to run to Christ's arms before it's too late. Don't wait till it's too late. For the unbeliever, the wrath of God abides on him right now. And presently the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against him, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. You know, the judgment that is suffered on earth for an unbeliever, it's just a prelude, a very simple prelude to the fire that shall not be quenched or that smoke of their torment which will go up forever and ever. Don't wait. If you will not believe upon Christ's There may be a happiness that you've contrived in your heart, unbeliever, in your hardened heart, but it will only lead to the irony of despair and destruction. And truly, to wrap this up, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 14, verse 12.